Hello, I'm CM Conway, the filmmaker of the witty and poignant indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, now on Prime Video, and FunnyFailureFilm.com. On this now monthly podcast, we celebrate funny flubs, bodacious blunders, and miraculous missteps that happen to us as artists. So hone your funny bone and let's get started. Welcome to the show. This podcast is inspired by the diverse community indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood. It's my first film and a champion of bold dreamers and courageous artists trying to make it against all odds. The title sort of says it all, and the film follows Ellie and her best friend, Ben, and how they make a difference in each other's lives while making some pretty fabulous flubs along the way, while navigating truth, fantasy, and identity in outrageous Tinseltown. Both characters are actors, and they use their slip-ups as stepping stones in a very innovative way. And that's what we try to do on this show. So if you're an artist and you've had a mishap that's happened on your journey and you'd like to share it on the show, please visit funnyfailurefilm.com and click on share your story. So today we're doing something a little different as I came across a very interesting book written in 1853 called Autobiography of an Actress, Eight Years on the Stage. It's written by Anna Cora Mowat, a French-born American actress who was also an author, playwright, public reader, and preservationalist. Her best-known work as a playwright was the comedic satire Fashion. And when I came across Chapter 12 of her book, besides some of the language that's used, this story literally could have been written today. So this is an edited excerpt of her story, a few pages into the chapter, and she's speaking about attending a rehearsal of her first play. The day before my debut, it was necessary that I should rehearse with the company. I found this a severer ordeal than performing before the public. Once more, I stood upon the dimly lighted, gloomy stage not now in the position of an author to observe, to criticize, to suggest, but to be observed, to be criticized, very possibly, nay, very probably, to be ridiculed if I betrayed the slightest ignorance of what I attempted. There's always a half-malicious curiosity amongst actors to witness the shortcomings of a novice. They invariably experience strong inclinations to prophecy failure. No wonder, for they know best the nice subtleties of their own art, the unexpected barriers that start up between the neophyte and his goal. Only those actors who are engaged in the scene rehearsal are permitted to occupy the stage. The play was The Lady of Lyon, Mrs. Vernon as Madame de Chapelle, and I as Pauline took our seats to open the first scene. The actors crowded around the wings, eager to pass judgment on the trembling debutant. The stage manager, seated at his table, scanned her with cold and scrutinizing eyes. The pale prompter 
laid his book upon his knee that he might stare at her more deliberately. Even the sleepy little call boy, regardless of the summons in his hand, put on the sapient look and attitude of a critic. If I could but shut out all these eyes, I said to myself, but turn whatever way I would, they met me, hemmed me in on all sides, girdled me with freezing influences. After we had taken our seats, there was a moment's awful silence. It was broken by Mr. Barry's dignified. He was alarmingly dignified. Commence, if you please. Mrs. Vernon spoke the first lines of the play. By a resolute effort, forcing myself into composure, I replied, I cannot tell why, but the sound of my own voice, distinct and untremulous, reassured me. The Rubicon was passed. I thought no more of the surrounding eyes, so full of speculation, of the covert ill wishes, of the secret condemnations. I gave myself up to the part and acted with all the abandon and intensity of which I was capable. None but actors can thoroughly comprehend the meaning of the appalling words, stage fright, the nightmare of the profession, a sensation of icy terror to which no language can give adequate utterance. I've seen veteran actors who have studied some new character until every syllable of the author seemed indelibly written on their brains, who had rehearsed their parts with the most telling enthusiasm, who gloried in the prospect of making a hit. At last, when night came and they stood before the footlights to embody the ideal creation for the first time, I have seen them seized with a sudden tremor, their utterance choked, their eyes rolling about or fixed on vacancy, their limbs shaking and every faculty paralyzed. I was not initiated into the horrors of stage fright on the first night of my performance, but the dramatic incubus visited me in the worst form on an equally important occasion, nor was the attack the sole one in my professional life. By what magic the demon can be exorcised? remains an undiscovered mystery. The morning of my debut was passed with my sisters. Scarcely an illusion was made to the trying event which must take place that evening. The rich apparel spread out upon the bed received its finishing touches at their hands and it was consecrated by a few silent tears. One of my sisters only, Julia, the youngest, had courage to be present when the attire was worn. As we drove to the theater that night, the carriage passed by my father's house. There was a group at the window watching for us. Handkerchiefs waved as long as we were in sight. I cannot help wondering what sort of place the world in general imagined the star dressing room to be. In the days of my nascent, I presumed it was a sort of boudoir, prettily and comfortably furnished to which the princesses of the stage retired to take their luxurious case. But, oh, the difference. The star dressing room is usually a small closet-like apartment with a few strips of well-worn baize or carpet on the floor. A rude wooden shelf runs along one side of the wall and serves as a dressing table. A dingy-looking glass a couple of superannuated chairs, a rickety washstand. These are, generally speaking, the richest luxuries of the locality. 
Such was the star dressing room to which I was introduced at the Park Theater. Mr. Moat's request obtained for me a Lilliputian sofa, so particularly hard that it was at once recognizable as a theatrical property, a thing of sham designed for the deception of an audience. I believe the demand for this delusive accessory to comfort was considered very unreasonable. I was just dressed when there came a slight tap upon the door, accompanied by the words, Pauline, you are called. I opened the door. The callboy stood without the inseparable long strip of paper between his fingers. I inquired whom he wanted. You, ma'am, you are called. What a singular piece of familiarity, I thought to myself. It is I whom he's addressing as Pauline? I did not suspect that it was customary to call the performers by the names of the characters assumed. Called for what? I inquired in a manner that was intended to impress the daring offender with a sense of the respect due to me. For what? he retorted, prolonging the what with an indescribably humorous emphasis and thrusting his tongue against his cheek. Why, for the stage to be sure. That's the what? Oh, was all I could say, and the little urchin ran down the stairs smothering his laughter. Its echo, however, reached me from the green room. <laughs> Where, after making his call, he had probably relayed my unsophisticated inquiry. At that moment, Mr. Moat came to conduct me to the stage. Next week, we'll continue part two of this chapter. Thank you for joining us in the How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood podcast. Copyright by Showstoppers and FunnyFailureFilm.com Intro and outro song, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star by David Mumford. Until next time, remember, mistakes makes art more interesting. <laughs>